If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 24, where we're studying through the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew. As you're turning to Matthew 24, I'll remind you of the long-time motto of the Boy Scouts. Be prepared. I'm going to borrow the model for the sermon title this morning. As we look at Matthew 24 and 25 and we learn from Jesus, there's really one message. And the one message that Jesus has in mind, though He doesn't use those exact words, is be prepared. But it's far different from the Boy Scouts because the Boy Scouts elaborate on their be prepared motto and it says be prepared for life to live happily and without regret knowing that you have done your best well jesus be prepared message is a is a little bit more pointed than that wink wink jesus be prepared message that we're going to hear in matthew 24 and 25 this morning is in essence be prepared because i am coming again Be prepared because I am coming again and I'm not coming as a speechless baby. Be prepared because I'm coming again and I'm not going to come lowly in a manger. Be prepared because I'm coming again and I'm coming as the judge. That's what we'll see this morning in Matthew 24, verses 32 all the way into chapter 25, verse 30. We're going to look at a large section. It's rather straightforward. We'll just work our way through it and be able to make some observations and comments and application. So we're going to look at this, and as we do, what we're going to see is really one thing. I'm just repeating myself, and that one thing over and over again is that subtle message that's not so subtle. Be prepared. And Jesus is so serious about this, that He not only talks about His second coming, He not only talks about the signs related to His second coming, He goes out of His way to give illustration after illustration after illustration after illustration after illustration after illustration, there are six of them, to make one point. Over and over and over and over and over and over. How many am I on? I don't know. And over again, just to make the simple point. I don't know about you, but I don't think it's because Jesus has a hard time communicating. I think it's because it's that critical that we get it, and because we have a hard time listening and comprehending. I remember the greater context. The greater context is 23 chapters of being impressed with Jesus if you're really a follower of His. I mean, it's just, it couldn't be better to go through Matthew 1 to 23, and it's just amazing, and it's wonderful, and we love him, and we see all that has been happening in his life, and in his ministry, and all that he says, and all that he's been doing. It's just nothing short of impressive. I've loved our study of Matthew. And then, in chapter 24, the final bit of sand, if you will, in the hourglass falls. And Jesus' patience has run out because as beautiful and wonderful and magnificent as Christ has shown Himself to be, the religious establishment has stopped Him or attempted to stop Him at every pass. And now Jesus' patience has run out with the leaders of Israel. Remember, the Israelites were the ones who boasted in waiting for Messiah. They're supposed to be pointing people toward Messiah. 
But they, being corrupt and the false teachers that they are, are actually trying to keep people from Messiah when he actually shows up. And so Jesus lays it on the line in chapter 23 and pronounces his woes, pronounces coming judgment, execution upon Israel, and makes it clear that they will be cut off from Messiah until the day they acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. So it's gotten really hardcore in chapter 23 and chapter 24 to the point where we saw last time, if you look at verse 3 of chapter 24, the disciples say, tell us, when will these things happen? That is, when will you, when will you come again? When will you execute judgment? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus gives that longest answer He's ever given to any question He's ever been asked, at least as far as is recorded. We looked at it last time. But not only does he give the huge, long example of, of this is what it's going to be look, look like, this is when it's going to happen, these are what the signs are going to be. We, we got the point last time. And now six illustrations. And then he's not even done then. But we'll do the six this morning. So six illustrations, urging preparedness. If you're going to write down anything for an outline this morning, you don't really need to because it's so straightforward. But he gives us these six illustrations that all aim toward one end and they are urging people to be ready, to be prepared because he is coming again and he's coming as a judge. Let's go ahead and look at the first one. The first illustration he gives that should urge us is a fig tree illustration. And before we get to it, actually, I'd like to know how many of you have seen a fig tree? I see one. I see two. Three. Better than the first hour. You guys are far more traveled and educated than the first hour. How many of you have seen a fig Newton? Yeah. That's the rest of us in our culture-ness. So, all of this to say, he's going to use an illustration that every Israelite would understand. The, the, the rest of us Nebraskans, um, or we might not understand so well, but they would have understood. As a matter of fact, in the providence of God, uh, I, we were just having dinner with some friends a few weeks ago, and uh, the woman we were with, she's actually from Israel, and we were eating Japanese food, I mean, of all things, and, and I'm enjoying my sushi, and we're doing all this stuff, and out of the blue, I don't even know how it came up, she starts talking about how great figs are in Israel. And I'm thinking, this is kind of strange. I'm eating sushi. Why are you talking about figs? And, and she talked about how great they are and fresh and not these other American figs. I'm thinking American figs. But anyway, I, I guess I've seen uh, them imported. But all of that to say, if you're an Israelite, you understand figs. They're on your mind. If you're from that area of the region, you, you understand figs. Well, we don't understand them, but we'll understand this because of the context. And I wanted to tell that story about figs, so let's keep going. Verse 32, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, we don't know that because we don't have fig trees. But it would be like us saying, you know what, when the leaves are falling from the trees and the trees are barren, you know in Omaha, Nebraska, what's about ready to happen, right? Depression. Winter, right? Winter is just around the corner. We know that winter's coming. Well, it's just a similar kind of thing as that. They all would have understood. And Jesus is making the point. When this is happening to the fig, fig trees, you know that summer's coming. Well, he grabs that and runs with it. Verse 33, so you too. When you see all these things, these things referring no doubt to what he already talked about, like in verse 8, the birth pangs. Uh, verse 15, the abomination of desolation. When you see those kinds of things, recognize that He, using it of Himself as Messiah here, no doubt, is near, right at the door. 
It's understandable, right? When you see the kind of things I've been talking about, it's just like when you see the fig tree and, and you're seeing it, it begin to, to flourish and you, you know summer's coming. Well, when you see the kind of things I've been talking about, you know that, 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 that it's close. Interestingly enough, in the same uh, context in Luke's account, he says in Luke 21, 31, right after this, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. If Christ is coming and that is coming close, well, no doubt if, if Christ is coming, He's the King, the kingdom of God is near. You'll know. Then Jesus says, if you look with me, you'll see in verse 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. We're going to get to the definite statements of you can't know all the details about timing. Only the Father does. But that's not to say that there aren't signs. We talked about the passage last time. I believe these are referring, he's referring to those people who will be living during that time of great tribulation right before the very end. We talked about why. I won't do that this morning. But then, let's keep moving. He gives an unequaled statement about the certainty of His coming. Look at verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I love that statement for lots of reasons. Heaven and earth will pass away. The world we're living in is temporal. He's assuming we believe that. We don't act like that. This is a good reminder. The world that we know is temporal. It's passing away. But over and against that, by way of contrast, Jesus says, my words, no doubt in this context, regarding my second coming and the sureness of it, won't pass away. This is as good as done. I like that. I also like it because even though it's not a direct, blatant statement, I think it's more indirect. For Jesus to say that His words will not pass away is for Him to say His words are eternal is for Jesus to make a claim to what? Deity. This is absolutely a claim to deity. You could jot down Isaiah 40, verse 8. There are other verses like it, but on Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, they're temporal, but the word of our God stands forever. God's word is eternal. Whose words are eternal? Only God's words are eternal. And Jesus is saying, My words are eternal. They, they, they stand. It's impressive. It's impressive to see Him saying this. But as sure as the promise is, It is not to say that all the details are revealed. Look at verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Now, he's not saying you can't know anything about his return because he's talked about signs and he's talked about uh, uh, being able to notice. But of that day and hour, you want to talk about specifics? No one knows. Not, Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. You know, I couldn't help but notice. Nor the Son whose words will not pass away. This isn't degrading to Jesus. He just got done claiming to be God. It's not degrading at all. Nor the Son. But the Father alone. Let me just read to you what I wrote because I want to get it right. Here's a profound quote some theologian wrote. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> These are just my, my lame words, but I want to capture this the right way. And given that the angels of heaven do not know, and the Son, as part of His incarnational, self-imposed, self-limiting humility, 
in light of Philippians 2. Given that the angels don't, do not know, the Son does not know, mere humans need to be alright with not knowing. Right? We just need to come clean with this whole thing. The angels who are above us don't know. The Son, God the Son, whose words don't pass away, doesn't know. Only God knows. So we need to be, yes, enthusiastic about prophecy because we're waiting for His glorious return when He exalts Himself. But we need to be really careful about trying to nail down all the intricacies and the details as far as exact timing. Think about it with me, if you would. When we do not heed this kind of warning, we, in effect, are saying, for example, when we date set, that we know more than Jesus. That's blasphemous. Don't go there. Be excited. You're supposed to be waiting. But be really careful. Please remember, verse 36. Look at it again. But the Father alone. It does not say, but the Father alone and Harold Camping or Hal Lindsey. Or some other nutcase who writes a book like 1994 or Countdown to Armageddon. I have to just vent for a moment about this. I'm just dumbfounded. The better word is I'm stupefied. I said first hour. That's one of my favorite new words because I find it to be so true of myself. I'm just stupefied by the fact that someone would write such a book saying this, when Jesus, this is when Jesus will come back. I, I, my mind is blown. I got on Amazon and looked up 1994 by Harold Camping. I was stupefied. Listen to some of the reviews. Great book. A must for everyone who loves the Bible. December 8th, 1998. Here's another one. Outstanding. February 13th, 2002. The book says Jesus is coming back in 1994. Hello? How about another one? An excellent book on end-time prophecy. This has got to be one of the best books on end-time prophecies. July 31, 2002. As the old saying goes, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Folks, angels don't know. The sun doesn't know. Only God knows. And therefore, don't even think you know. And be thankful you don't live during the Old Testament. Got a rock? (laughs) These people would be dead. Yes, let's be excited, but let's be very, very careful. Vigilance is good and right. Date setting is bad and wrong. Fair enough? I think it's pretty clear. I don't think you need a PhD to understand it. All right, let's move on. A second illustration that's designed to push us toward preparedness. The second illustration is of Noah. Look at verse 37 with me, if you would. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Verse 38 tells us how. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Until the day of Noah, until the day that Noah entered the ark. What's the point of that? What's he getting at? He's getting at the fact that just like Before the flood came, everyone was just living life 
as they had lived their life in the past. And, and they, they weren't showing preparedness. He's certainly not saying, well, the problem then was they were getting married. The problem then was uh, they were eating. The problem then was they were drinking. Unless you have an agenda to try to make that the problem. He's just saying, it's going to be like in the days of Noah. People are just living their life, even though circumstantial evidence around them might be screaming at them otherwise. Even though I've given this long discourse of warning, people are just going to be living however they want to live and ignoring what's going to happen. Then verse 39, and they will not understand, and they did not understand. Again, I can't help but say they didn't understand because of lack of information during Noah's day. No. Noah had been preaching to them righteousness for years. People are, it's not going to be that they don't know from lack of information until the flood came and took them all away. And we know that it took them all away in judgment. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Despite the warnings in Noah's day, despite the warnings before Christ returns, despite the circumstantial evidence around before Noah's day, before Christ returns, People are going to be ignoring, just living life the way they've lived it in the past, going about their merry business. If 80s alternative music is trendy then, as it is now, maybe they'll be singing the mocking song, Armageddon days are here again, with noted lyrics. But if you think that Jesus Christ is coming, honey, you got another thing coming. He hasn't come yet. Why would He come in the future? Like Peter talks about. That's really bad rationale, by the way. Verse 40, then... I knew those lyrics because I am an 80s alternative fan, by the way. I'm kind of a junkie. So, uh, but not of that particular song. Then, at the second coming of Jesus, the context would indicate, right? Second coming, that's what he's been talking about. He's been talking about judgment. Verse 40... Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken away and one will be left. Verse 41, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Do notice that in verse 39, took them away. Verse 40 and 41, will be taken. What's he talking about? He's talking about judgment. The context clearly is talking about judgment. And I know that messes up some of your favorite prophecy movies. And I know it might mess up some of my favorite songs. There'll be two, and one will be taken. Verse 40 and 41. Context, verse 39. They'll be taken, not raptured. They'll be taken in judgment. That's how I take this. Wow. It's pretty intense, Jesus. Well, why is he doing this? Verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know which day our, your Lord is coming. Now he gives another illustration. The illustration of the thief in the night. What's it designed to do? Same thing. Push people toward readiness. It's pretty gutsy too, by the way, because Jesus is in the place of the thief in the analogy. Let's go ahead and read it. Verse 43. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time uh, of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. Think about that. If you knew somebody was going to break into your house tonight, what would you do? Kick back? Take a little NyQuil? 
No. If I knew somebody was going to break into my house, I'm going to unlock Smith & Wesson. I'm going to call the police. I'm going to call the, the, the policemen who were at Omaha Bible Church and tell them. Tell them to tell their friends. So they can tell two of their friends. You get the idea. Locking and loading. I'm ready. Right? That's what you would do. I'm ready. I'm going to protect my family. Well, Jesus is using this as an example of if you know Jesus is going to come back like a thief, what do you do? You you get ready. The analogy breaks down. Not with Smith and Wesson either, by the way. But Jesus isn't a thief either, so I'm allowed to do that, I think. Verse 44. For this reason, you must... You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. That's His point. The point is vigilance. Let me ask you the question. How how is it that you can be ready? How, how, How is it that a person, whether it be today or in the distant future, can be ready to meet God? To be okay when Christ comes again? There's only one way. The only one way to rightly be ready for Him when He comes is to be on His side. Psalm chapter 2 is a great one when it comes to this. He will come, and He will come with a rod of iron. And what does He use? What does he do with a rod? A staff, a ruling rod. He smashes with it. And that's why Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm, urges people to kiss the Son, embrace the Son, worship the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. It's a great one. You've got to remember that. The only way to escape the wrath of the Son is to become the friend of the Son. And we know that's through the Gospel. I do want you to turn to a great passage when it comes to this, about the Gospel, and that's 2 Thessalonians. So if you can turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, if you can get there rather quickly, if you're new to the Bible, you might just want to listen. But it is a great one because it relates the second coming of Christ, Christ's return with the only way to be ready, and the only way to be ready is through the Gospel. It's only through trusting in Christ. It's only through being on His side based upon His terms. And this is something that's a message for all of us, and it's certainly the most significant thing we could ever deal with. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, the context is encouraging believers because they've been persecuted, and you know, it's to say to believers, a day is coming when Christ will return and justice will be done. It says in verse 7, And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. It's no doubt judgment. It's no doubt second coming verbiage. But what I want you to see is in verse 8, Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not... Here's what I wanted you to see. Obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. How do you escape the wrath to come? Well, the wrath giver is going to be the Son. So how do you escape His wrath? Well, you need to be on His team. You need to be on His side. And you need to, to use the biblical terms, obey the Gospel. I love that wording. I love that wording because the Bible does talk about you know, Jesus uh, calling people. You have more of the inviting mode in Scripture. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. The Bible definitely talks about that. And so we want to talk that way too. But sometimes we forget that the gospel isn't only, some, isn't only something that is to be responded to by invitation. It's something to be responded to as an act of obedience. Based upon the authority of Scripture, yes, I invite you to trust in Christ, but that's not all. 
based upon the authority of Scripture, so that you might escape the wrath to come, wrath to come, I command you to believe the gospel. The gospel is a command. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Right? Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we forget that, that, that Jesus did grow up and Jesus spoke and, and we forget that Jesus talked about coming again, right? If I were to ever write a book called The Jesus I Never Knew, I would talk about this Jesus. Yes, He's gracious. Yes, He's kind. Yes, He's loving. Yes, He's compassionate. Yes, He's forgiving. And yes, He's coming back again. And there's only one way to escape His just or fair wrath. And that's coming to Him on His terms, which is through the Gospel, that He died a sinner's death, even though He never sinned, that He rose again from the dead, and He rose again from the dead on our behalf as well, so that all those who obey the truth about Him, believing the truth about Him, will be declared perfect in His sight and will be on His side. This is the Gospel. This is the good news. Guarantee of all forgiveness of sins. It's the way to escape the wrath to come. It's the way to truly be vigilant and ready. And we as a church and I as a fellow human being, as a Christian, would urge you to trust in Christ even today, only by His grace. Well, with that in mind, let's move on to the fourth illustration. A master and his servants. We can do this one rather quickly. Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave or servant whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Verse 48. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time. And begins to beat his fellow slaves, treat them unjustly, and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and and at an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him to a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Pretty hardcore. Isn't it interesting if you look at verse 48? My master is not coming for a long time. In the context of vigilance and preparedness, Jesus uses an example of someone who professes to to rightly serve the master. But in his mind, he says, you know what? He's been gone for a long time. He'll be gone for a long time still. Let's make sure we make this point of application. A person who thinks like that, Jesus hasn't come back yet, and it's been a while, so I'm sure it will be a long time in the future. People who think like that, Go to hell. Is that not what he's saying? It's exactly what he's saying. Cut him up in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's verbiage that's used of hell. Inconsolable grief as a result of torment. 
again, Jesus is urging people who are listening to Him so that all who would listen after them be ready because it's going to happen. And if you think it's not going to happen because it hasn't happened already, which is ludicrous, you're the kind of person that's going to go to hell. Remember, Jesus is the loving Savior. That's why He's saying this stuff. He would be sinister, cruel, and mean, and nasty if He would have known these things were true and if He wouldn't have said them. I would suggest to you that I would be mean, sinister, and cruel if I were to somehow not talk about this very thing that's in front of us in the Bible, the words of Jesus. I would suggest to you that you are mean, sinister, and cruel if you audit, or excuse me, you edit the Scripture and you don't talk this way either ever. Urging preparedness. Urging readiness. Then he gives another illustration. And if by now, by the way, you think I'm just a broken record and you're thinking, the sermon's just all about one thing. I'm so thankful that you've at least been listening that much. <laughs> it's just all about one thing. Apparently we need to know all about this one thing. We need to know a lot about it. Even though he's saying the same thing over and over again. The next illustration that should urge toward readiness is the illustration of ten virgins or, or ten maidens, we might say. From what we learn from extra-biblical history and from culture, this is rather agreed upon. It's pretty understandable. Once you know this, you can understand the passage quite easily. Uh, it would have been common occurrence to have a wedding procession. It would have been common occurrence for, for the bride-to-be to have all of her attendants, we might call them. Uh, it's used here as virgins. All of her bridesmaids, we might call them. And they would go on their procession, and they would go, and they would be quite a spectacle in a good sense, and they would have their lamps, or they would have their torches, to keep them lit and they're all going and everyone in town would have known what they were doing. It's a wedding march. It's a wedding procession. They're headed to the wedding and they're going to meet up with the groom and all of his party. And isn't that amazing? And isn't that great? But it would be so everyone knew what was going on. They didn't drive in the limousine with the cans behind that said, just married and say, oh, look, they just got married. But it's a similar kind of idea. It's a wedding. They're getting married. With that in mind, we can read, and it's understandable. Matthew 25, verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins or maidens who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. We know in this case, uh, in the context, so five are prepared and five are not prepared. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. They didn't take any extra, so their torch would stay lit. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, I would notice that as well. From a human perspective, we might even see that there is delay. They got all they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout: "Behold, the bridegroom! Come out to meet him!" They're all excited. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, "Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are gone are, are going out." Verse nine. But the true prudent answered, "No." There will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Now, just before we read the rest of it, I just have to quick insert a little comment. If you fail to remember something really basic, this could be confusing. 
If you were to take a basic Bible interpretation class like the ones we offer here or at a, a, a Bible college and you were to read a basic book on hermeneutics, the science and art of Bible interpretation, you got to the pa- chapter on parables, it's going to tell you that a parable by, by literary device, if that's the right way to say it, has one main point. It might have some subpoints, but, but there's, there's one main idea that's being driven forth. Where people have gotten themselves in a lot of trouble throughout church history even is when they try to make it an allegory and everything means something. And now all of a sudden you've got, you're saying, that's not very nice of those Christian virgins to not share with the other ones. It's not the point. It's a parable. You watch people who build all kinds of theological superstructure on parables and they're really confused. It's a parable. There's one point. That's why it's okay for Jesus to put himself in the position of the thief in the one we just looked at. So keep that in mind. I just couldn't help but slip in a little, little opportunity for, for teaching to make sure you read your Bible in that way because that's the way it's intended to be read, no doubt. So with that in mind, go buy some for yourselves. Verse 10. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord. Open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, uh, I do not know you. Again, do you conclude that Jesus is not nice? Jesus is unjust. He's unfair. He really should have been a lot more gracious. No. He spells out the terms ahead of time. Here's what's expected. Be ready. And if you're not ready, it shows you really don't belong to me. Thus, that's why he said, I don't know you. We don't have a relationship. You, you in effect, are strangers to me. Why would I I somehow treat you like you belong to me when you obviously don't? They say, Lord, Lord. Reminds me of Matthew 7. They they, they profess to know him, but he says, I don't don't know you. We, we We don't have a right relationship. And you've proven that we don't have a right relationship based upon the fact that you've not done what I've asked you to do. That's the argument of Matthew 7. He's not doing anything wrong. Then Jesus once again spells out the main point. Verse 13, be on the alert then. For you do not know the day nor the hour. One more. And you guessed it, it's going to be about the same thing. We might call it the illustration of the entrusted possessions. Verse 14, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Talent is a unit of exchange. Uh, Many commentators think that even some of our marginal notes that people added to our Bibles far underestimate these amounts. Someone notes, if a talent is worthy of 600 denarii, then it would have taken a day laborer 20 years to earn so much, perhaps $3,000. This is a big deal. He's entrusting things to his slaves. It's different than the slavery we would typically think of. They're partners in business even. So with that said, verse 16 says, Immediately 
the one who had received the five talents, went and traded with them and, and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and, and hid his master's money. Verse 19. Now after a long time, now again, maybe Jesus is, is giving us more, more hints here. Maybe it's reading too much in. I'll be honest and say, maybe. Time can pass. But vigilance should still be the same. No, I don't think that's reading too much in. I think that's the intent. Let's keep reading. The master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 24 you know what's going to happen. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, get this. Just don't, don't, don't check out yet. Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow. And gathering where you scattered no seed. How about that? The master entrusts riches to the servant. The servant knows he's guilty. And so what does he do? I'm sorry, I sinned against you. Would you forgive me? No, he does what we sinners love to do. It's your fault! Right? It's ugly. I didn't do the right thing. Oh, and by the way, it's your fault. It's just how we work. He didn't obey the master, so in an effort to justify himself, he blames the master. It couldn't be more perverse. Verse 26, But his master answered and said to him, and I think what the master is doing is he, he's assuming the rationale of the servant. Okay, I'll take up your argument. You, uh, but his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave! You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Okay, I'll, I'll meet you at where you are. Okay, I'll grant you that. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Verse 28, Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has had ten talents. Verse 29, For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and to the one who, ha- who and he will have abundance. But from the one who does not have, due to lack of love for the master, evidence in refusal to do what he says, no doubt, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw him out. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, again destru- describing hellfire. What's the point? I thought it best to do all of these verses because all of these verses are about the same thing. But I almost wonder. I almost wonder if we should have done a six-part series, six Sundays in a row, all talking about the same 
thing. We would have been part of the church shrinkage movement, no doubt, and you would have said, it's just the same thing. But maybe I'll at least invite you to chew on that idea a little bit. Illustration, 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 illustration. Why? Because we need it? Because it's important? Because it's true? All of this, remember, because the disciples, having heard Jesus say, I am coming back and I am judging. And they knew the implications of that. And they said, when is it going to be? And, and, And they want to know details and they want to know signs. And he gives his long answer and then he gives illustrations. But he's not done yet. In order for the Messiah to rightly finish his job, if you will, in answering the question, he's got one more doozy for him. And for you and for me. The one final thing he needs to talk about, although he's already talked about it, but he's going to talk about it even more pointedly, even more forcefully, he's going to talk about his coming to be the judge. Sending people to eternal destruction or eternal life. So, next week, we'll hear from the one who said more about hell and the Bible than anybody else. Jesus. Next week, we'll hear from the one who loves us so much that he tells all of the truth. And I will try my best to love you so much that I will tell all of the truth when we look at that next time and we close out this section. So pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our great Savior, the one who spoke and the one who spoke the truth and the one who did in fact love us to the point where he would say whatever was true, whatever was right. We are thankful that he did speak of heaven and we did, he did speak of eternal life and that we can be with him forever by your grace. But we are thankful that he spoke of hell, eternal condemnation. Because that too is true. Lord, we love You and we love to worship You and we love to praise You. We love to learn about You. But may it not stop here. Lord, may our learning be for living and for proclaiming and for loving not just You, but others as well. In Jesus' name, Amen.